Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 73. We'll begin with a brief summation of chapters 13 through 16 in 2 Samuel and follow with a consideration of the thorny proposition of revenge. In the previous episode, Natan the prophet admonished David's lecherous and murderous behavior and prophesied that, quote, I am about to raise up evil against you from your own house. In this episode, evil will be raised. And it begins with David's children, specifically his daughter Tamar, born of his wife Ma'acha, and his eldest son Amnon, born of his wife Achinoam the Israelite. The text tells us that Amnon loved Tamar, and goes on to describe how Amnon was, quote, so distressed that he fell sick. He also didn't know what to do about his feelings, as virgin tampering was generally frowned upon in biblical times. So, Yonadav, Amnon's counselor and cousin, advises Amnon to play sick and requests that Tamar tend to him. And then, when they're alone... Come back here! Jessica! No, Jessica! Shimon Bar-Ephrat points out an interesting construction in what follows. There are seven interlocking scenes, each involving two characters, one of whom appears in the next scene. So this moment between Yonadav and Amnon is followed by a scene between Amnon and David, where Amnon plays up his sickness and begs his father to send Tamar to minister to him, followed by a scene between David and Tamar, where father asks daughter to tend to her sick brother. Scene 4 finds Tamar tending to Amnon before Amnon savagely rapes her. In scene 5, Amnon summons his attendant, who in scene 6 throws Tamar out into the street. Tamar in scene 7 puts ashes on her head, tears her garments, and wails as she makes her way to her brother Avshalom, who in the concluding scene gently tries to ascertain what happened, and when he discovers the truth, counsels patience as he plots his revenge. And the revenge is swift and brutal, but it comes when Amnon least expects it. Two years later, at the sheep-shearing festival at Baal Chazor, with Avshalom acting the gracious host of all his brothers from other mothers. Avshalom makes a grand gesture of inviting David, an invitation he knows will be kindly refused, hoping that David will send Amnon in his stead, which David does. One wonders what David is thinking at that moment, knowing what had happened between Amnon and Tamar, Avshalom's sister. And yet perhaps David hopes, with the passage of time, the grudge might wane. Perhaps the sheep-shearing festival might actually help repair that relationship. Perhaps it might belay Natan's curse for just a little while. But Avshalom has other plans, murderous plans. He instructs his servants to ply Amnon with wine, and when given the word, strike him down in cold blood, which happens as planned. The other brothers, sons of David, flee for their lives, but word spreads faster than the donkeys upon which the brothers escape. David hears that Avshalom has killed all of the king's sons. He is utterly devastated. Natan's prophecy has been fulfilled. All is lost. But Yonadav, Amnon's counselor and cousin, speaks up, assuring David that only Amnon is dead, that Avshalom has been playing the long game to avenge Tamar, planning Amnon's murder since the day Amnon raped her. Avshalom, meanwhile, has no intention of waiting around for David's reaction. He flees to the court of King Telemai, his maternal grandfather, which puts him out of David's jurisdiction. There he remains for three years. 
But although Avshalom is out of sight, he is not out of mind for David. And at the beginning of chapter 14, Yoav decides to act. He constructs a scene much like the one Natan did after the murder of Uriah, concocting a fanciful moral dilemma designed to engage the king and provoke him into proper action. This time, the story does not involve a rich man who lives alongside a poor man and a sheep, but a wise woman, a widow from Tekoa whom Yoav actually enlists to unfold this ruse. He instructs the widow to seek David's help about the following matter. Quote, Your servant has two sons, and they quarreled in the field, and there was no one to part them, and one struck down the other and caused his death. And look, the whole clan rose against your servant and said, Give over the one who struck down his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed, and let us destroy the heir as well. And they would have quenched my last remaining ember, leaving my husband no name or remnant on the face of the earth. Oh, okay, I see what you did there. So David responds in the appropriate manner, assuring the woman that as long as he is king, no harm would come to the murdering son, etc., etc., etc. But then the widow from Tekoa reveals the truth unraveling what is, in effect, a parable of David's own situation, which prompts David to ask, quote, Is the hand of Yoav with you in all this? So David sends Yoav to Geshur to bring Avshalom back, which he does. But there is no grand reconciliation. Avshalom returns to the palace, but, quote, the king's face he did not see. For two years, Avshalom lives in the palace, and David will not see him. And though Yoav was successful in getting David to agree to Avshalom's return, he could not get the king to reconcile with his son, although he probably didn't try all that hard. He didn't want to push his luck. This was a touchy business after all. Remember that despite being a rapist, Amnon was also the heir to the throne, and he was murdered by the next son in line. But being continually ignored by his father pisses off Avshalom even more, so Avshalom tries to move matters along by ordering his men to burn Yoav's fields which definitely gets Yoav's attention. Yoav, the ruffian, is outruffianed. He goes to the king, engineers a reconciliation, and father and son embrace. But this embrace is a hollow one, as Avshalom's even longer game continues to unfold. Chapter 15 finds the attractive heir out amongst the people, dispensing judgment and identifying with the people's frustration vis-a-vis -vis David's grinding bureaucracy. The early polls out of Iowa indicate that, quote, Avshalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Four years pass, and Avshalom seeks leave from David to go to Hebron, David's first capital, to, quote, pay my vow that I pledge to the Lord. But this mission of offering an exculpatory sacrifice, apparently for the murder of Amnon, is but a ruse. Avshalom intends to rally the Judahites to his standard and declare himself king. Once the ram's horn is sounded, the plot unfolds quickly. Avshalom's coterie of 200 men lead the insurrection. David receives word and orders his servants to prepare to flee. The household is quickly packed up, except for 10 concubines left to mine the palace, and David heads east into the wilderness. Before traversing the Kidron Valley, he sends Itai the Gittite and his mercenaries away, as well as Tzadok the Kohen, who brought out the Ark of the Covenant, telling him, quote, Bring back the ark of God to the town. Should I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see it in its abode. Crossing the Mount of Olives, barefoot, head bare, weeping, he is a pathetic sight. Before departing for the desert, he sends his trusted advisor, Hushai the Archite, back to Jerusalem, commanding him to pretend to shift allegiances to Avshalom to save himself, all the while striving to sow confusion amongst the usurper's advisors, especially the sage counselor Ahitophel. 
As he continues east, he encounters Ziva, the servant of Mephibosheth. If you recall, Mephibosheth was Yonatan's son, the last surviving heir of the house of Shaul, whom David had showed kindness by inviting him to live in the palace. Now in this moment when fortunes have turned against David, Mephibosheth might be showing kindness to David, sending mules laden with food to sustain the king as he flees. Except not. When asked where his master is, Ziva says that Mephibosheth remained in Jerusalem, hoping that with David's expulsion, quote, the house of Israel will give back to me my father's kingdom. And if that's not bad enough, on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives, David soon encounters Shimi ben Gera, a Benjaminite, who proceeds to curse David and throw stones at him. When Avishai ben Surya steps forward and begs David's permission to cut off Shimi's head, David replies, quote, Look, my son, the issue of my loins seeks my life. How much more so than this Benjaminite? Leave him be and let him curse, for the Lord has told him. Perhaps the Lord will see my affliction, and the Lord may require me good for his cursing this day. Meanwhile, Avshalom's forces occupy Jerusalem, and Hushai the Archite is waiting for him. Achitophel, the new king's advisor, recommends that Avshalom immediately and publicly have sex with the ten concubines who remained behind in the palace. This act would send a distinct and powerful message to the people. First, it is an assertion of ownership. By sleeping with the king's concubines, one establishes dominion as king. Second, by sleeping with David's concubines and commanding the throne in this fashion, it makes reconciliation with David impossible. This move would not only embolden the supporters of Avshalom, seeing Avshalom act in this manner, it would also force the fence-sitters to choose. But in so doing, which Avshalom does in a tent on the roof of the palace, he also fulfills the words of Natan, who, when cursing the king, told David that just as he took the wife of a man in secret, his wives will be taken from him, quote, before all Israel and before the sun. Thus endeth the summation and beginneth the consideration. This week, I want to talk about revenge. But first, so last episode, I staked out a position on what I believed happened between David and Bathsheba. I called it rape. And some folks pushed back. The extremely fraught and complex issue of consent and rape is ever-present, always seething under the surface, but periodically it bubbles up and explodes. As it did here recently in Canada, with the trial of a popular CBC radio personality, or with the unfolding criminal entanglement of a much-beloved television patriarch in the United States. And at the root of all these outcries, conversations, and trials are the changing attitudes and evolving notions of what is acceptable behavior and what is not. The law is often last to the party. But this week, I don't think anyone will try to defend Amnon or portray what he did as anything but rape. As disturbing as the account is, for me, the more disturbing aspect of this story is the fallout or more specifically, the lack of fallout from this terrible violation, which sets the stage for what followed. Revenge. When word of Tamar's rape rips through David's household, David has nothing to say or do about what happened. 
Well, that's not exactly true. I mean, that's how it feels, especially considering how pronounced David's sense of justice and fairness is. Recall the rage he expressed to Natan when Natan tells him the tale of the poor man's sheep in chapter 12, quote, As the Lord lives, doomed is the man who has done this, and the poor man's you shall he pay back fourfold inasmuch as he has done this thing, and because he has no pity. David's reaction to Tamar's rape is, well, muted. Quote, and King David heard all these things, and he was greatly incensed. Is that all you got, huh? Is that all you got? Is that all you got? Is that all you got? In the alternate versions of the book of Samuel, specifically the Qumran edition and the Greek translated Septuagint, there is an additional line, quote, But he did not vex the spirit of Amnon his son, for he loved him, since he was his firstborn. But I have heard, or better said, have not heard this before, specifically in the story of Shechem and Dina in Genesis 34. Quote, now Yaakov had heard that Shechem had defiled Dina, his daughter, but since his sons were with the livestock in the fields, Yaakov kept silent until they came home. Now, feminists have taken a second look at the story of Shechem and Dina, with many arguing that this sex there was actually consensual, a bit of reversal from the other sexual incidents in the Tanakh, uh, but that debate and red tents aside, from Yaakov's perspective, from what he had heard, it was a defilement. And his first reaction is silence. Even when the sons return, in Hamor, Shechem's father comes with an offer of marriage alliances, it's the sons who speak with Hamor, concocting the story that Yaakov's daughters can only marry circumcised men. The only time Yaakov speaks is to express anger with Shimon and Levi, for massacring the people of Shechem, to which Shimon and Levi caustically respond, quote, Should our sister be then treated like a whore? Again, Yaakov responds with silence. And here too, David is incensed, but he says nothing. Even in the Qumran Septuagint alternate, where a half-hearted gloss tries to explain the behavior, David is still silent. He's angry, he's enraged, he's vexed, but he's not verbal. Where is the defense of Tamar? Where is the defense of her virtue, her virginity? Where is the railing against Amnon? There isn't even a brutally insensitive, slut-shaming, she-had-it-coming comment. There's nothing. And that gets me. How could David say nothing? What could possibly explain his silence on this issue? And the thing is that Yaakov's silence, his passivity in the face of Dinah's defilement, when decisive action is desperately needed, leaves a vacuum which someone else inevitably has to fill. Shimon and Levi act decisively to avenge their sister, and in doing so set the whole family on a particular course of action in Canaan, where they have to relocate, and relations between them and the locals are extremely tense. But more importantly to the family, Yaakov is effectively marginalized as leader of the family. Yaakov may still be the father, but he no longer really calls the shots. The sons will drive the action for the family from here on out, and we know how that turns out. Spoiler alert, it turns out badly. In other words, revenge. Well, not exactly revenge, revenge for a terrible wrong, but revenge for a perceived slight. In 2 Samuel, almost immediately after David silently seethes in anger, Avshalom too has his moment of silence. Quote, and Avshalom did not speak with Amnon, either evil or good. But this was a silence that bespoke a plan that would take 12 years to truly unfold. Avshalom would have his revenge. So, revenge. The act of taking vengeance 
is defined as, quote, punishment inflicted or retribution exacted for an injury or wrong. The Torah is pretty specific about acts of revenge, portraying them as negative and to be avoided. As the author of the Psalms later states, quote, Have I repaid those who have done evil to me? Behold, I have rescued those who hated me without cause. Well, that's true, except when the divine mandates it. Quote, Bear in mind what Amalek did to you on the way, at your going out from Egypt, how he encountered you on the way and attacked your tail, all the beaten down ones at your rear, while you were weary and faint, and thus he did not stand in awe of God. So it shall be, when the Lord your God gives you rest from all your enemies around in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess it, you are to blot out the name of Amalek from under the heavens. You are not to forget. And if that's not the dictionary definition of revenge, well... So, when you think about revenge in the long arc of Jewish history, one would think that we would be bigger fans, considering how many historical wrongs we have endured. And in fact, if you Google Jews and revenge, the first hit is not a white supremacist website or a preview from Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. It's the Wikipedia entry for Nakam. But before I tell you about Nakam, I should tell you about its predecessor, the Nokmim. The Nokmim, which literally means the Avengers in Hebrew, were a Jewish partisan militia formed by Abba Kovner and his lieutenants Vitka Kempner and Rozka Korchak and the surviving remnants of the United Partisan Organization, which operated in Lithuania under Soviet command during the closing years of World War II. After World War II, elements of the Nokmim combined with veterans of the Jewish Brigade in British Palestine to form a new organization called Nakam, which means revenge. After the war, Allied officials identified 13.2 million men in Western Germany alone as eligible for automatic arrest because they had been deemed part of the Nazi apparatus. Fewer than 3.5 million of these were charged, and of those, 2.5 million were released without trial. That left about a million people, and most of them were never punished. If they were, they received a fine, or the property they stole from Jews was taken from them or they were banned from running for public office. By 1949, four years after the war, only 300 Nazis were in prison. From an original wanted list of 13 million, only 300 had been punished. Thus, the members of Nakam concluded more needed to receive their due. Though accounts differ on some details, they agree on the essentials. Nakam would, for example, identify a Nazi who had melted back into civilian life. They would stage an arrest and spirit him away. Some of these ex-SS men would be strangled, others hanged, all the better for passing off the death as a suicide. In some cases, former high-level Nazis would be found dead in roadside ditches, apparently cut down by hit-and-run drivers. Others met their end in car accidents caused by mysterious mechanical failures. Nakam functioned well into the 1950s and went to Spain, Latin America, and Canada to track down and punish Nazis. Although they focused on individual acts of revenge, they also struck out at large targets too. In April 1946, they put arsenic in the bread at Stalag 13, a detention center for former SS men in Nuremberg, poisoning 1,900 German prisoners of war. The precise number of men who died is unknown, but this was Nakam's plan B. Plan A was bigger. Kovner and Nakam's inner circle 
planned to poison the water supply of Munich, Berlin, Weimar, Nuremberg, and Hamburg to kill Germans indiscriminately and on a massive scale. What happened to prevent the execution of Plan A is still unclear, even today. We do know that Kovner went to Palestine to consult with the leaders of the Yishuv, Israel's pre-state government. Kovner met with Chaim Weizmann, a leading Zionist, Israel's eventual first president, but most importantly, a research chemist. Weizmann gave his blessing to Nakam, even offering to help them acquire the poison. We also know that Kovner, with two canisters of poison on his, in his backpack, was arrested by British military police while on a ship bound for Europe. He had been betrayed, but by whom? Did the Yishuv fear the blowback from such an attack that it would undermine the Zionists' moral claim as victims deserving a homeland? But on a more biblical level, did this act of revenge reduce Kovner and the Nakam organization to the level of the people they were seeking revenge against? In other words, did pursuing an eye for an eye leave everyone blinded? Avshalom was unconcerned about moral claims of this nature. He had already lost a sister. Whatever losses he might accrue were worth it if he could make Amnon and his father pay for their actions. Amnon would pay for ruining his sister's life. David would pay for shielding his heir. Amnon would lose his life. David would lose his throne. And so Avshalom waited two years before moving against Amnon. And then he played, as I said, the long game, waiting for three years in exile, two years in quiet rebuke in the palace, and four years of schmoozing the people before being able to finally avenge himself on the man who confronted this terrible injustice with silence and inaction. Avshalom would eventually overthrow David and practically scuttle his father's kingdom. It's quite ironic that of all the people in this story that quote-unquote had it coming, it's David. And he got what he richly deserved. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, you should check out TanakhCast. Or like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or write a brief review at the iTunes store, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's small thing, really, but it will help other people find TanakhCast. I thank you in advance for that, and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 74, when we continue the second book of Samuel with chapters 17 through 20.